welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 10, recorded on February 12th, 2019. The podcast no longer requires a credit card. Good evening. Welcome to the Cloud Pod. Another wonderful Tuesday evening with my lovely 805 from the company Keg. How about you guys? Ooh, okay. So I went above and beyond this week. Um, I got turned on to this bourbon called Straight Edge, which is made out of Napa. And it doesn't say on the label, but I think the person who told me about it said that they basically age it in old wine barrels. Yeah, the Cabernet barrels in the Napa vineyards. I'm hooked on this stuff because I could just drink it straight and it's got that little bit of uh, sweetness, almost like you added the tiniest bit of vermouth to, but it's pretty much just straight bourbon. Um, yeah, it's hurting my pocketbook because it's becoming my go-to bourbon. Who's, who's talking again though? Oh, is that Peter? He's back. Oh, sorry. This is Peter. Oh yeah, you probably forgot. You probably forgot what my voice sounded like after that uh, that long uh, that long layoff I had. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, we we did miss you last week, but uh, we found a suitable replacement. I heard it. I heard it. Ryan was awesome. You guys picked the wrong guy when you picked me for the permanent person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We like you on the show here. You got that that little bit of CTO validity to it, I guess. Awesome. <laughs> what about you, Jonathan? What are you drinking tonight? I have the eight at five again. It's uh, easy going. I agree. It's been a fun week since we recorded last week. Lots of news again, as usual. You know, when we started this podcast, I sort of had doubts that we would have enough news to talk about every week. And I've yet to be uh, disappointed in the amount of stories that we have per week to cover. So, uh, you know, way, yay for the cloud innovation that's happening in the space. Yeah. And pat on the back for us because we're at episode 10 finally. Yes, episode 10. 10th anniversary. Finally double digits. All right. Let's get into the news. First of all, if you are running Docker and you're not aware of the Docker Run C vulnerability by now, you should probably be aware of it real quickly. Uh, it, this is a vulnerability that lives in the Run C binary of Docker. This allows a malicious container uh, to basically be able to replace the Run C binary with any exploited Run C binary that the hacker or perpetrator would like to install onto your Docker hosts or Kubernetes hosts or ECS or AKS or any of the numerous, numerous orchestration engines. Um, this impacts Docker as well as Mesos, LXC, uh, and there are other variants of Docker container runtimes that this may also impact. So do check with your vendor. It's important to point out that the vulnerability is not mitigated by AppArmor or SE Linux and that you need to patch as soon as possible. Yeah, it's actually a, a very large impact to Amazon as well. So, uh, you know, and they're uh, press release on this for the security issue. They mentioned this impacts Amazon Linux, um, ECS services, of course, EKS, Fargate, IoT, Greengrass, which runs some type of container, um, Amazon Batch, Elastic Beanstalk, Cloud9, SageMaker, RoboMaker, and Deep Learning AMI. So uh, if you thought, oh, I'm not running Docker containers, but I'm, I'm using Cloud9, you're, you're also in trouble. So make sure you follow the instructions uh, from the vendors. Um, both Amazon and Google have released uh, a security bulletin on this, so you can read what their recommendations are to fix these issues. Um, Azure at press time has not, although they did in their AKS GitHub repo do a tag release for 2019 02-12, um, which does include the fixes for this particular issue. Yeah, but I mean, I think most users are running, I mean, how many people are using untrusted or running untrust or containers from untrusted images on their cluster? I think it's obviously important to patch uh, and get this thing up to uh, but if you look at how like many days, zero, how many customers right? do you have uh, using Node.js 
containers as their base <laughs> that you know they don't want to rebuild themselves because they're very complicated to build. So I, I, I thought you'd be surprised how many people are, are starting with some type of public Docker image um, and then adding their own layers to it from there. I, I guess that in general is bad practice. <laughs> It, it is technically bad practice, yes, but uh, I know many, many people who are doing it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're a little bit more safe if you're you're taking an Alpine base or you're taking um, something created by the vendor itself. Like we talked last week about Coretto, um, you know, that's an official Amazon, you know, Docker image. I think those are probably relatively benign because they're from vendors that you have trust and contracts with potentially. Um, but any time where you're like, you know, some some bot guy, <laughs> you know, implemented uh, Nginx with some special proxy layer on top of it, you don't really know what that is. That should be a concern for you. Absolutely. So definitely get to patching uh, as we all like to do in the enterprise space when these type of vulnerabilities come out. I guess Fargate's the um, the scary one right now because you, you have no idea who you're sharing those um, those hosts with. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I, I guess this next week or two is going to be the, the dangerous phase where somebody gets a hold of the, the actual exploit, which wasn't published, and uh, re-engineers a base image in the hopes that somebody will build on top of a buggy base image. All right, next story. Uh, Azure account failover now in public preview. Um which I think I talked about this last week, but Azure's naming conventions <laughs> leave a lot to be desired. Um, so why this has account failover, this is not accounts like you think of from the Amazon world or from the Google world. This is apparently storage accounts and storage accounts typically have apparently geo um, relation. And so this is if you want to fail over your managed storage solution from one of the West regions to an East region, uh, this is a new service allowing you to do that without having to reconfigure your apps. So it uses DNS records and C names, of course, to then rotate the traffic between the two sites. Um, it is You control when the failover occurs between the primary and the secondary region. Um, and once you do that failover, the storage becomes locally redundant um, until you reestablish replication between the two regions. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's no, um, there's no local redundancy while you have two active storage uh, sites and so i guess you kind of double your cost or multiply your cost significantly at the time you do a failover um, it's interesting they're providing this as uh, you know at the at the platform layer unlike amazon who gives you uh, very 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 specifically regional resources and and, uh, and the tools to manage that failover yourself the first entry points that we see from customers into the cloud is for dr and it's one of those things that i think managed services that make dr easier in the cloud is uh, super valuable to customers who are first getting into the cloud because DR is often one of the most complicated as well as one of the most valuable features as far as workloads go. So anytime uh, Microsoft or Amazon or Google are making DR easier for people to implement and therefore more likely to work when it needs to be exercised, I think is super cool. I've been doing Amazon migrations for a long time and a little bit of Azure here and there in my past lives. I've never led with DR as my go-to first solution to put into the public cloud. It's always weird to me when people talk about that, like, oh, yeah, I do DR first. Because in my mind, you know, it's not like hardware. It's not, you know, not even like networking. It's it's all very drastically different. And so, yes, yeah, so technically you might be able to re-substantiate services in the public cloud from your private cloud in the event of a disaster. If you haven't tested for it and you haven't done a bunch of the due diligence, I, I just don't know how great of a strategy that is. I know Amazon shouts it. I know everyone talks about it, but I've just never done it. I don't know. How, how do you guys do it at Foghorn? Lots, but I mean, DR, you know, when you look at DR, the DR solution, and this is becoming less uh, less common because the cloud, cloud infrastructure has become so accepted for production workloads. Um, but prior to that, you know, there was always detractors 
in larger uh, enterprises that um, had arguments for why we shouldn't use the cloud for production workloads. And DR was often sort of a backdoor to get just get started in the cloud. And it started with, hey, the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to get backed up into the cloud. We're going to have our offsite data in the cloud instead of doing tapes and dealing with tape rotations, which everyone hates because then they got to go out to their colo facility to do it or hire someone to do that. Uh, so it was a super easy way to avoid those arguments. But now, even when your cloud native solutions are running, you know, you got your cloud native app running, you've got your data in a region. One of the most difficult things for people to architect, it's not getting that app running in a highly available fashion in one region. It's dealing with DR. And so I think today it, it sort of moves from, this is our backdoor to start using cloud for as an enterprise to this is the thing that's kind of hard to do and it's kind of hard to architect. And if the vendor offers me a managed service around that, I'm probably going to take it. I mean, I think there's a ton of DR companies out there that I think we talked about two weeks ago that are used for either DR or migration that kind of validate that it's a pretty pretty big need and people are willing to pay for it. I like the service. I like the fact that this is a feature because in the AWS world, it's always been difficult to fail S3 buckets over. I mean, you, you could set up lifecycle things that copy objects between regions, but there's no real SLA around that. And there's no SLA for this either, to be fair. Um, but but failing back again, there's no there's been no process by which you could evaluate the contents of, a, of an S3 bucket, for example, and uh, copy the copy the differences back again to your primary region. So I like I like that this manages your objects and and the manages the failover. And I like that they're disclosing in advance that there's likely to be data loss. My question to you though, Peter, about about failovers and DR in the microservices world, do you fail over if if there's any failure in a region, do you fail Oof. over the whole region, or do you fail over do you fail over just the service? Which uh, yeah, which has right. The issue? So I mean, if you think about DR in general, like most most times when uh, companies are trying to you know, they put their DR plan in place. It's because they're trying to meet some contractual requirement with one of their customers. And usually that is specifically around a regional disaster. So although you can use your DR plan to fail over a single service, a database, et cetera, uh, most solutions are designed to be really uh, used in the event of a regional disaster. So it's all from the region that are moving. And when you test it, it's going to be all that in the region that are moving. But it does bring up a good point, right? Because a lot of times, like in the old days, it would be tough to tougher to move everything. But now with these microservice architectures, it might be harder to move just one than it is to move everything. Yeah, and I guess I've had lots of conversations over the years about the differences between high availability and disaster recovery. And, and there's obviously some blurred lines in the processes that move things back and forth. And I would, to answer your question, I would say all. DR equals a you know, a regional outage uh, and your HA capabilities on your uh, metropolitan area network, they're all gone. And so now you got to be somewhere else. Now, uh, there's a caveat in this announcement. Uh, you should not use it for production workloads because uh, the product is not GA yet. And I also recommend checking the DNS to make sure the DNS is up as we talked about last week. Well, that's really valuable because, you know, I know a lot of companies who leverage DR for their development environments. I don't know any who use it for production, but a lot of them use it for development. Speaking of AWS, when I think of cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. 
They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia, and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their FogOps services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. Google Cloud now is providing BigQuery Sandbox uh, without a credit card. This is a way to use the BigQuery machine learning technology from Google without having to pay for it. Um, it's really for users and students to experiment with it for no cost. Um, you get the same access to compute power as a paying customer, and you can run queries on small and large data sets as long as they do not exceed either one terabyte per month of query capacity or 10 gigs of free storage. All Dables and partitions have a 60-day retention period. You can use some of the more advanced features like the BigQuery machine learning engine and the BigQuery geospatial information systems, but there are some services that are not available to you, like the data manipulation language and streaming and data transfer services. So a uh, pretty nice improvement for students in particular, uh, or if you're just looking for a big data solution that you don't want to deploy EMR or Hadoop, um, this is a nice little solution for you. The difference between no cost and no credit card required is, is quite significant because now you don't need to have this relationship with them necessarily. You can just start playing with it. And BigQuery is quite interesting in itself because it um, enables you to build data models, machine learning models, and then um, and query them using a SQL-like language, which is it's going to be good for the traditional business analytics type folk. Free tier has been around for a long time, uh, but that's always at risk, especially if you're someone who couldn't afford to make a mistake. You're always at risk of automating something that you think might be free tier capable and cost you a couple bucks to, oops, I made a mistake. And when I got the bill, it was six grand. And yeah, I'm, I'm in big trouble with, <laughs> with, uh, uh, with my credit card company right now. So I think, I think it's super cool to allow people to effectively use a free tier without the risk of accidentally spending thousands of dollars. So then last week, Azure uh, had a very busy week, particularly in the healthcare space. And so there's a couple of announcements around uh, not only healthcare, but data. And so let's start with the first one, which is the new Azure API for the Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource, um, or FUR, as I'm calling it for <laughs> short. Uh, this is a turnkey method for healthcare data to, and machine learning solutions to access healthcare data, uh, either between vendors and or between machine learning algorithms and the data that a healthcare provider may have. There apparently is a growing need for this type of service, and so Azure is very happy to provide this, and it does meet PHI data compliance requirements and HIPAA. So. Yeah, there's been so much competition in the health records, electronic health records market that something like this is going to be necessary to aggregate data from different providers, large cohorts studies and things like that. So this is, it's pretty cool. I haven't seen anybody else uh, developing a platform like this. So good on Microsoft. It's such an in-demand space right now. The All of the startups that are coming to Foghorn, uh, there's a ridiculously large amount of them that are uh, healthcare-based SaaS offerings that either help connect patients to their data or help patients and um, and doctors collaborate, whether it be uh, or patients and and doctors through their uh, through their drug providers collaborate on you know very specific areas around potentially collaborating with a, a drug that is still in uh, testing or around some some experimental uh, treatments uh, to help uh, the the drug companies get real-time information as well as these, you know, I mean, when you're in one of those experimental programs, usually it's it's not for a good reason. And so 
helping connect uh, these patients and the doctors and the drug manufacturers is a huge area of uh, potential benefit for for us, for our healthcare system. And there's tons of startups uh, going around this area, but you're stuck with this. You know, we got to make sure the HIPAA is hilarious because it's it's privacy and portability. We need to make the data very private and we need to make it very shareable. And uh, those two, you know, it's it's tough to make that work together. And But we see tons of people doing it and using the cloud to do it. There's definitely a lot of complexity with HIPAA. And so anytime you can make it somewhat easier, I think that's a win. And this has a lot of uh, very in-depth auditing capabilities and ability to see who's accessed the data and when and what they did with it. And so I think it's a nice solution. The uh, other healthcare item that Microsoft announced last week is the new Microsoft Healthcare Bot, uh, which brings conversational AI to healthcare. Um, this bot is available in the Azure marketplace. Uh, it allows healthcare organizations to build and deploy compliant AI-powered virtual health assistants and chatbots, um, allowing users to self-service, uh, drive better health outcomes, and reduce costs of, for the provider, which is really great. And I was my first thing I was curious about was, well, does it understand all those really complicated medical terms, um, which apparently it does. Um, it does meet HIPAA, uh, ISO 27018, uh, 27001, CSA Gold, and GPDR requirements. And it also supports uh, the FER API. Who's really the market for this? I mean, is it basically, is it a pre-screening thing? You know, do you have a headache? Do you have, do you have, uh, are you feeling lightheaded? Do you have chest pains? If so, call ambulance right now. Otherwise, maybe speak to one of our nurses. Like, I'm not really sure what the scope of work we can expect out of a bot like this to be. I can imagine it being pretty irritating if you're, if you're trying to chat to a doctor or chat to somebody about a serious problem and it says, you know, are you sure you're bleeding to death? What's, um... Uh, at what point does does it bail out and say you need to speak to a person? I assume this is more about bots that can help you find doctors. Um, maybe it has some symptom-driven care, like, you know, hey, if you, you know, please tell us your symptoms. You're like, I have a stuffy nose and I have a congestion. They're like, well, you might most likely have a common cold, right? And that might be able to help expedite you to a medical person um, without them having to go through some of the basic questions and get that information into the system faster. So um, there were three design partners on this, though. Primera Blue Cross, which would be your insurance provider. Quest Diagnostics, who does typically you know, blood testing and uh, drug tests and those type of things. And then, of course, Advocate Aurora Health uh, was the third one. So they uh, apparently identified very diverse use cases through these three partners that they felt they built a workable solution for. So I, I definitely think it's still early days for bots in a lot of ways, and we'll see where they go. Yeah. Agent, please. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had, a, I had an experience recently helping a family member through a healthcare emergency, and I had to talk to a doctor to get some advice, and I spent probably... And this is after an ER visit. Uh, this I probably spent two hours on the phone going through, waiting on hold to talk to a person because that's the only way to do it, and then talking to the person who's not the right person, and getting you know going through the queue several times before getting to the person I need to talk to to get an answer to a question to see what we can do without having to go back to the ER that night, and. I bet this healthcare bot could have turned that two to three hours into 15 minutes. Yeah, it's always really frustrating though when you, you go to the bot on the phone or or the chat bot online and it takes a bunch of data, you know, who are you? Give me all your details. And then you finally get to speak to a person and ask you the same things again. Like, yeah. you're not, are you not connecting the dots? What's, what's yeah, the problem? Work. Yeah, no, it has but, to work is, the, is the, <laughs> the, minimum, the minimum viable product. It has to do something. 
Yeah, I mean, I just imagine for mental health, this would be a nightmare. Like, uh, I feel like no one's listening to me. <laughs> connection, connection timed out, you know. Can you move that? If, if that was in lightning round, you totally would have won. <laughs> um, the, the other thing, Ace, is liability makes it so frustrating to work with some of these providers. I mean, um, you know, we have family in other time zones and trying to speak to their healthcare providers. Out of hours, you'd think you could leave a message for them, but no, you can't leave a message because you might leave an important message and uh, and they don't want you to do that. They want you to, to find somebody else to speak to right now. Like, well, that's, that's frustrating because if I call during the day, they're all too busy to speak to me anyway and I get sent to their voicemail. And so it draws out the whole process. So I would hope that, that with, some, with some intelligence, these bots could actually... Um, help filter out you know the, the right kinds of messages and get the right messages to the right people and, and really help improve healthcare. Azure has announced uh, three new data services. The first one we'll talk about is the Azure Data Lake Storage, or ADLS, which sounds like a terrible disease. The tagline for this is the No Compromise Data Lake. <laughs> There's really two parts. I think the first is um, storage and the Azure Blob file system. And then the second part is you know compatibility with Spark and Hadoop to then process that data out of the Azure Blob file system. Um, they also support Databricks and a couple other third-party data analytics companies that do similar things. Um, and they also implement a hierarchical namespace uh, to help you uh, address your data compliance needs and how your structure of the data compliance. I'd say no compromise. There's no such thing as no compromise. So uh, that's it's a little bit of a that's a pretty big sell. But um, well, I mean, it's not unbreakable data lake. At least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not as bad as unbreakable for sure. Not as bad as that. But um, the but uh, yeah, I mean, making it compatible with uh, Spark and Hadoop and, and, you know, when you do that stuff, then you allow these opportunities to uh, to process that data in a streaming fashion, which. Uh, then makes uh, makes the data lake concept significantly more valuable rather than just ingesting everything you know into file based systems where you then run your uh, you run your MapReduce jobs and then and then pushing out the uh, the output. Uh, I definitely, I mean these are these are the features you need if you're going to have a data lake. So it's good to see they're going in the right direction and they're supporting open source protocols. The, uh, the next one is the Azure Data Explorer, uh, which is a fully managed data analytics service for real-time analysis of real-time streaming data. Uh, so this is designed for speed and simplicity. Uh, it leverages auto-scaling and data sharding to achieve uh, its capabilities, and is now available in 41 Azure regions. I don't know too much about this service. I don't know. It, it seems like nowadays, the this is, I guess, the uh, proof that open source has been successful is... I want somebody to tell me what the open source equivalent of this service is so I know what it does. This is very similar to Kinesis Firehose, in my opinion. Um, you know, you're taking real-time streaming data and you're processing it and doing something with it. So you, know, you do that with a Firehose, you push that off into a queue or into Kinesis, um, or you can take action on with all their primitives. So um, I do think Amazon has a feature in this space as well. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I don't do a lot of real-time analytical streaming. Uh, but if I did, this is a solution. So, And then the uh, the last one is the Asia, Azure Data Factory Mapping Data Flow, or ADF for short, uh, which is a hybrid cloud-based data integration service for orchestrating and automation of data movement and transfer, transformations from your on-prem data center or from the Azure cloud or other cloud providers to their data products. Uh, there are currently 80 built-in connectors for this one. Mm. All your data is belong to us. 
<laughs> yeah. Again, I think this is another Me Too uh, announcement similar to some of the things that Glue does, some of the other data flow uh, ETL job capabilities that are out there. Um, so this is really nice ETL on steroids. Um, it's a little bit of a Me Too with uh, both Google and Amazon, but you know, uh, Azure is definitely investing, you know, investing a lot of money into the analytical space, uh, in particular with SQL and those things. So it's good to see these products coming and, and open source equivalents uh, now being productized. So it's great. Yeah, and I think uh, that these are the devils in the details. How easy are they to use? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how easy glue is. <laughs> like, well, that's the point, right? The the one that that glue replaced was what was it called? Pipeline, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was pipeline. And and you know, you these tools, everybody has a need to use these tools. But the reason you want to use these tools is because they're supposed to make it easier. And how much easier do they make it? Who can the user be? Does it have to be a programmer? Can it be um, a data scientist? Can it be just a business guy? And that really defines, you know, how valuable the service is. I browsed through the the uh, the UI for this. It looks pretty much uh, UI or GUI driven, drag and drop stuff. It looks like the traditional BI people could come along here and say, take this data from here and transform it using this factory, which is all just defined in the in the console with um, pattern matches and things. Um, then you map fields to to output schemas. It looks um, like the traditional SQL guys. They're gonna love this. That's that for Azure news this week. But uh, let's move on to uh, our friends at Google. So the first one is just kind of a fun story. Uh, apparently, Golden State Warriors and their new arena, Chase Center, have named Google Cloud as their public cloud provider. Uh, when the new arena opens, uh, Chase Center, of course, is a new Warriors arena replacing their facility in Oakland. Uh, this is going to apparently going to be a collaboration between not only the Warriors, the Chase Center, and GCP uh, to integrate Google Cloud services into the fan experience and into the coaching and player management. Uh, and they want to be data-driven uh, and being able to provide multiple avenues for using Google Compute to solve need your needs and all things basketball. I wonder who drove this. I wonder if it was the team who drove this and picked Google or whether it's just a simple proximity to Mountain View and uh, it just seemed like a, a good local team to support. You know, if you can't get the naming rights to the arena because Chase got it and you want your name in there and, you know, it's definitely a, a new sponsorship avenue. I've never heard of a team announcing their official public cloud sponsor. Um, so it seems like a, a nice play for them. Plus it gets Google hardware and Android devices potentially into the, the coach's hands, let people you know be on TV. It's, it's all a marketing play at the end of the day. And you know they even talk about you know the partnership includes sales and marketing, inventory access to both radio, social media, and in arena advertising. So, you know this is so when the Warriors announcers talking about you know that quick shot play, you know they can say brought to you by Google Cloud. So there's there's it's definitely all marketing driven at the end of the day, but it's, it's still an interesting uh, concept that I hadn't seen. Well, I guess so. I guess so. Make use of a bunch of AI, AI services and video analytics and all that kind of cool stuff. In fact, I'm pretty sure Amazon did a, a demo of this exact same type technology at reInvent. Um, I think that's wasn't that for baseball though. Yeah, MLB. And you know, and Microsoft has a pretty tight integration with the NFL. You know, they have surface uh, surfaces all over the sidelines with the coaches and the players to watch replays real time and play breakdowns. Um, and their playbooks are on on surfaces, so. Yeah, there's definitely a trend for these providers to get into these sports organizations and get their products on TV where they can be seen by consumers and they may be interested in buying that product. So, um, you know, I don't know how it quite computes to the Google Cloud other than there's a lot of Silicon Valley 
money going to the Warriors games, and maybe that will turn into a business for them. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Foghorn's uh, office is right next to the new stadium. I've been a Warriors fan since I was born, so uh, I tend to think this is probably mostly marketing. But if it isn't, I challenge Joe Lacobe to call Foghorn Consulting, and we will help them win their next three or four titles. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, it sounds great. I would love it. Uh, are you are you guys getting a are you guys getting seats at the new arena? Can we can we come visit you up there? Maybe record the podcast in person before a Warriors game, perhaps. Wouldn't it be great <laughs> if I'm like, yeah, we have a we have one of the suites. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we don't have a suite right? there. But uh, uh, another thing, maybe Joe would be willing to give up in order to get our expertise to help them get the most out of the Google Cloud platform. Yeah, maybe maybe so. <laughs> The next uh, couple of announcements from Google were all in the cloud container space. The first one is a new integration with their cloud build product with Kaneko, which is apparently a container caching layer that you can use in your build pipeline to expedite the speed of building containers. Uh, they quoted Stripe, who did a study who said that companies waste $300 billion in lost developer productivity every year. Um, which they didn't exactly directly attribute to waiting for my Docker container to build, but $300 billion sounds a little light. Um, I mean, you're not supposed to sit around waiting for stuff to happen. You know, it's supposed to be, you know, start a process and go and do something else in the meantime. So I kind of question the the, the value they placed on, on wasted time. I think uh, maybe a little bit of a market. market I mean, I, I can think of 300 billion other ways that developers waste a lot of time in meetings and design planning sessions and, you know, wall planning and things. But, uh, you know, I don't know if waiting for my Docker container to build is it, but, you know, I do, I do have watched a container build and take a long time. And so be able to cache that data, I think it's nice. Isn't it already cached? Aren't layers cached locally when you do a build anyway? I mean, well, but the problem, this is, this is the, this is their build service. So I don't necessarily know that it's caching this data because it's supposed to be on demand and it's part of their build factory. And, but yeah, so if you're using Jenkins on premise, that the data does get cached on the host. No, fair enough. I guess it's in that case, it's probably a cost and uh, a time-saving feature for Google as well then. Yeah, and anytime you could speed that process up, because now we're at this position where if these things are immutable, then if we want to change one line of code, that whole pipeline has to run in order to push that out. And so if you could, if, if that process is, you know, 15 or, or 20 minutes, that could be uh, extremely frustrating. Yeah, I guess it's just trading storage for for time. Just goes to show how much cheaper storage is that they can that they can implement a caching layer like this and still make it profitable. I definitely think it's good though, because I I do feel the frustration when I try and change two little things in a file. Then you go to the build pipeline, you're like, okay, I have to wait yeah. ten minutes for the container to build, and then see if it runs. And I mean, I do I do see the advantage, so I, I I'm I like it. I think it's a good improvement. Definitely try out Kaneko for some of my other use cases of something I can use outside of Google. Um, I definitely would like to do that. So on my radar all right google's other big announcement is uh the ga release of a product they're calling jib j-i-b uh, this is the 1.0 release it went into beta sometime last year uh, but basically google analyzed java builds and java containers in particular and felt they were too slow to build had messy docker files and the containers were just too big and so Jib is an open source tool to containerize your Java application with minimal effort. You don't need to install Docker. You don't need to run a Docker daemon on your host. And you don't need to write a Docker file. You just plug this into Maven or Gradle, and it automatically builds you a container, very similar to packaging up a jar file. That's great. This is what we need. We need, we need application containers. It's a natural progression for sure. Yeah, and it makes it super easy for people who aren't in a containerized world and they have their build um, process. And I mean, this could 
this just makes it so much easier to do that migration to containers. Yeah, it's definitely nice because you you know you're a Java shop and you're trying to adopt containers, and that means you have to redo your entire build pipeline. That might be a big lift. Um, where this might be really simple and quick for you to build basically the same capability without having to do a lot of work. I think it's awesome. Um, it does also natively integrate into Scaffold uh, for Java, which is for K8 or Kubernetes. Uh, and so you have easy integration directly to Scaffold as well, which is, uh, makes it super easy to even deploy this into Kubernetes, which makes sense uh, due to Google's involvement in the Kubernetes project. All right, and then the final story for tonight, uh, Amazon has acquired Eero, um, which is one of the more popular mesh Wi-Fi companies out there. Uh, I will disclose that I am a customer of Eero. Uh, I have three of them in my house um, that replace my Google Wi-Fi that I was hating on pretty hard, uh, and I love it. Um, so I'm super happy to see that you know it's not at risk of going out of business now. Um, you know, I did see some concerns about people talking about privacy and, you know, the concerns of, you know, I don't want Alexa in my Eero because I don't have any Alexas in my house already, which they haven't announced that would happen. And the acquisition isn't closed, of course, so they, they won't talk about that. But um, I would assume they're going to still offer the Eero standalone as well as an Eero combined with Alexa, if you wish to do so, because that just makes sense. Uh, but this is a really nice play for their overall IoT strategy and can be a really solid IoT hub uh, for many homes. Excellent. So what's... Um... So why do they have an advantage over the, the Google Wi-Fi? Well, uh, so I had the original Google canister. Um, so I never went to the meshed version of Google Wi-Fi. Um, and I just I didn't care for the software very much. And I, and I had this problem where my neighborhood is full of Wi-Fi signals. And I have to basically I'd run out of channels at some point in the day. And I'd have to reboot the whole unit. Um, and I got angry at it. And then I just bought the the Eero instead of buying another Google product uh, that could have probably done the same thing and probably worked just as well. But um, like I said, I, I didn't like the product uh, and the interface on the mobile device, but the, the Eero I like much better. And they also have a product called Eero Plus um, that allows me to filter my children, which they hate, uh, as it keeps them away from bad sites, uh, as well as turns off their internet automatically at 9 o'clock. So they must have <laughs> oh, that's cool. Is that like the, is that like the, Disney, uh, the Disney Circle product? It's not as good as the Disney Circle product. Um, it doesn't quite have the same level of filtering that I want to have in it. Um, but it's a really great starting place without doing really weird Wi-Fi manipulation that the the Disney Circle does. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm super happy with it. And it keeps my kids safe. And that's what really matters to me. Excellent. It's not me turning your internet off, kids. It's, it's the system. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and coupling that with, you know, we're an iPhone, iPad household. So, you know, couple that with screen time and then I can now even limit them to, you know, they can only play Fortnite for 15 minutes a day and then they can then earn uh, additional Fortnite time with chores, Ooh, which makes me super happy. Don't let my happy. wife so, know about that. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's locked down at my house for the kids. My wife might make me do chores in order to play video games. Is the content filtering a, an additional service or is that built in? Yeah, it's part of the Eero Plus service. I think it's um, it's basically using Zscaler, um, which is a enterprise proxy product that uh, runs in the cloud. It's basically Zscaler filtering. It, it's actually on for everything, but I don't have the really restrictive filtering on for all the devices. Um, but it's actually really nice because it natively blocks ads from a lot of websites. And so I'll, if I try to go to um, like ads.twitter.com at home, I can't go to it because <laughs> it considers it to be a, a ad hosting website, uh, which is sort of funny. But uh, it, it definitely is an extra charge, but um, 
you know, it has additional capabilities that you don't get out of the box uh, that I, I felt were worthwhile. And for the cost, you know, versus running my own little proxy at home on my Docker hosts, um, it made sense. Cool. That sounds good. I'm looking for a solution like this for, for my place. Um, I do have a circle that I've had in the box for literally four months now in my office waiting to be set up. Um, and I, every time I think about doing it, I just worry about all the fun I'm going to have fighting it in my Wi-Fi because it, it does really do a lot of weird uh, layer three, layer four manipulation and tries to basically inject itself in front of all your devices. I know it does weird stuff like uh, poisoning and things like this. It's like I, I just can't imagine that anything I have be happy with with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think if I were to do it, I would want it on a separate Wi-Fi network uh, that the kids only use, but then they would just figure that out and move over to the right Wi-Fi. And yeah, I tried to do that. I tried to have a separate Wi-Fi network for, to, to kind of separate the IoT type, you know, the, the, the Alexas and the Google Homes and things. The frustrating thing is, at least with Google, you've got to have those devices on the same Wi-Fi network as your mobile devices. Otherwise, you can't cast to them. You, you just lose out on features. And so they make it really hard to to separate your networks, you know, in a secure way. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. Um, you know, enterprise Wi-Fi, you can kind of solve some of those problems. And the Eero, actually, I believe... Because uh, I have a guest Wi-Fi, but I still allow you to access like my printer and my Apple TV and my Eero guest network. So you can you could specify specifically this particular host is available both to the normal Wi-Fi and to the guest Wi-Fi. So you had some control there, which you didn't have otherwise. Yeah, that's cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. So the uh, the Eero Plus subscription, which I have, the one year subscription is hundred dollars extra. Um, but it comes with threat scanning, family-safe browsing, and ad blocking uh, built in. Plus, it gives you a subscription to Encrypt.me, VPN, password, one password if you use that, and Malwarebytes if you want that on your home computers. So it's a $368 value, according to the marketing on their website, for only $100. Um, I don't use any of the other three products, but I do use the advanced browser filtering <laughs> and content filtering, which is what I cared about. For you, the listeners of the CloudPod podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook downloaded with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod for your free audiobook. Where today we are standing at Jonathan two, Justin one, Peter one, and Ooh. guests one. So I'll hand it over to you, Peter. All right. So I'm going to remind you of the rules. There's no aggregate scoring. Uh, the only thing that matters is the one comment that interests me or makes me laugh uh, the most. So now I don't know if you fully finished listening to last week's episode where you were absent. Um, but we did follow the rules pretty strongly. I heard. You know, we did call out. We did call out that you know first time activities in the lightning round are definitely high contenders, and so we had to give it to Ryan last week because of you know first guest, uh, first global optimization play in the in the thing. So we, we we followed as best we could, but we did say that you know you could potentially overrule. No, I would I would have totally given it to Ryan. I thought that global optimization comment was hilarious. That would have got me to laugh, oh, good. my dumb laugh, and then you would have heard it, and then you would have known he won, and then at the end, I would have told him he won. I had a first in that one, too, though, I want to point out, but I not, did not outdo Ryan's first. So, so. It's, all right. <laughs> it's not just first. It's just that's a... Uh... It's a hot... It's a, it, you know, it's a, on the ratio of scoring, it has a slightly higher multiplier. Uh-huh. I understand. All right. Well, okay. tough call. Are we ready? Here we go. Lightning round. Are we ever ready? I am, by the way, uh, just back from from my time off so i might be a little more quiet on this one i think my likelihood of winning this is very low but you two need to duke it out so here we go 
So Google announced support for six new cryptocurrencies in their BigQuery public data sets. Can't wait to find out how Dogecoin failed. <laughs> it's just freaky. Like people use people use cryptocurrencies because they think they're going to have privacy, and then Google offers offers your entire transaction history as a service. That's unfortunate. Completely anonymous, but completely public. It's in, it's a, absolutely yeah yeah. All right, so Stackdriver supports new languages and analysis features. So they support Node and Python and Java now, finally, I guess. It's great when they support 15-year-old languages. Yeah, but, That's really yeah, awesome. but Python is coming soon. <laughs> oh, that's right. It is coming soon, according to the chart. I do like that they chart, they put in the word soon. Instead of just like a weird, you know, empty circle that, you know, had some weird key I have to look up somewhere else to see what it actually means. It just says soon. So so pleasant. It means please it means um, please don't go anywhere else. Exactly. Just just wait us out another another several years and we will have this for you. All right, next. GPU support for Amazon ECS is now available. That way I can mine that Dogecoin and then track it in Google. I concede. There you go. <laughs> I concede. <laughs> no, what, how hilarious. I feel like uh, I always screw Justin in this section, and how hilarious would it be if I... Uh... <laughs> you give it to me for conceding. That would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be fantastic. And next, next week will be I concur. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we talked about this we talked about this recently and we, were, we had questions about you know how we, you could share gpus and basically the answer is you can't share gpus you just have to assign you just have to create instances with like eight gpus attached and just and just uh treat them like any other resource that you can't share between containers so yep all right next uh, Amazon SNS adds support for multiple string values in blacklist matching for their message filtering. I'm so glad they found regex. <laughs> uh, man, you're going to be Next. tough to beat today, Jess. You're going to be tough to beat. <laughs> He's got this grin on his face. I can just see it through the wall. All right, next. Unless you got something, Jonathan. I got nothing. AWS X-Ray SDK for .NET Core is now generally available. I look forward to the x-ray technology to investigate why I'm using .NET Core. So that's why my app is working so bad. It, is that the only the, the only announcement that uh, the only alert it has? You're on .NET Core. What did you expect? <laughs> that would be, be fantastic. I found the problem with all your transactions and tracing them. It all comes back to .NET Core. Here you go. All right. Next up, Amazon FSX for Luster offers new options and faster speeds for working with S3 data. You know, when we did the recap show for reInvent, which was episode number one, um, we really did not give them enough crap for Luster as a name for this product and FSX. Like, I mean, when you look at it just quickly, it looks like four sex for uh -huh. Luster. And I just, I don't know why they named it this order of words and letters, but it does not does not uh, work out for me very well. But uh, you know, I'm glad it's two times faster. And it, it, actually, I'm sort of intrigued that it writes natively to and from S3. That's a nice feature too. For sure. I, file systems are always the, uh, the hardest thing to leave behind when going to the cloud. I, can, I have 22 <laughs> petabytes I can talk to exactly. you about. Exactly. Not exact issue. All right. AWS Site-to-Site -Site VPN now supports Ike V2. I did not support this already. 
I didn't realize I didn't support this. We should have a reward for every week where we like this is this is the reward for the item in the lighting round we thought already existed. Uh, I like Ike. Mike and Ike, so just regular yeah. Ike. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the Warriors, they drafted a guy, and I like Ike was the response. You can go back. People can go back and look up who they drafted named Ike. I mean, I'm a Fairweather fan. I've only been a fan since I moved to the Bay because. I don't know. You're so the last lucky. Five years for the Warriors. You met, you missed out on so much pain. <laughs> well, I, 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 but I was from Seattle, where we had the Sonics, who were ripped out from underneath us by Oklahoma, and so you know, I. But it was you know, the Kevin Durant was you know on the Sonics at the time, and so now it's come full circle for me. So now I can root for Kevin Durant, who I was super excited about when he got drafted by the Sonics, or signed by the Sonics, or whatever that was, uh, and now I can watch him again. Yep. So I'm super yeah, happy they did draft him. You are correct. Nice. Wrong, wrong sport. Wrong sport. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. I'll take it. Not gonna win the. Not gonna win the lightning round, but pretty good. Um, okay, next. Amazon CloudFront announces six new edge locations across the U.S. and France. Why? How big is Atlanta that it needs two edge locations? It does. It, it, there, there's two. There are two in Atlanta. It, I literally added two in Atlanta, and I was like, "That's a lot of edge locations for." A very a city that I, mean, I know it's a big city. It has the biggest airport in the world, but I, it doesn't seem like it would need two availability regions for. Let me get. They didn't add it for, for latency. They added it for capacity for, for throughput for capacity for sure because Atlanta's got a huge uh, it's a huge tech hub. All right, next, Amazon Elasticsearch service now supports three availability zone deployments. That's where if you've got extra cash. Well, they, this is they, they needed a place to put all those 200 they now support. So more availability zones makes it easier to fit in. Three is the way to go if you're going for HA. Three is a magic number. Back on the whole like, karaoke thing from last week. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you didn't sing it like I did. So you, you missed out. Feel free. <laughs> nope, I'm not doing it again. I heard the I heard the replay. I was like, ooh, that was awkward. So. We can now use AWS CloudFormation to automate WebSocket API creation. In Amazon API Gateway, they're so behind in features. I really wish API Gateway would pick up the pace. Like you know, especially with after Google bought Apogee, it just shows how far their API Gateway has to go to get where it needs to be. But uh, you know, I'm glad glad CloudFormation finally got added for a feature that they announced almost a year ago. Well, it's two pizza team. The, the CloudFormation right. team, has, you know, the API Gateway team is not uh, beholden to the CloudFormation team to release a feature and. CloudFormation prioritizes their stuff and uh, releases it when it makes sense to them. So, well, I mean, at least Slack can now use this for WebSocket. Yeah, <laughs> they got to stop buying bigger pizzas. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, they should open up. They should open. They should open up their office in Chicago. They have those big ass Chicago style pizzas. In your developers, we go, go with Costco pizzas. Costco pizzas are big. All right, AWS Ops Works for Chef Automate and AWS Ops Works for Puppet Enterprise now support AWS CloudFormation. Yay? No. Same comment. Just no. Two Just pizza no. team. Everything Just... should be supported by CloudFormation. Well, I mean, I'm I'm more, I'm I'm still stuck in the part that you're using Chef. You're using Ops Works. Let's start there, and then and then you chose between Chef, which is okay, and Puppet. I'm like, okay. And then now you're supporting that CloudFormation, I guess. But isn't the whole point of Chef that it, or, or Puppet for that matter, to automate infrastructure? So 
it's a little weird. Oh no, but you have to use salt to deploy the CloudFormation stack. Oh, that's right. To, to call first. Puppet to, to call Puppet and Chef in OpsWorks. And then you call Ansible to register it all in the console. I get it. Ah, uh, just set five. I could three. totally terraform all of that. You totally could. <laughs> all right, next. AWS Fargate now has support for AWS Private Link. So I think I think they have almost fully launched everything you need for Fargate to be used in enterprise. They lowered the price. They added Private Link. They uh, support. Uh, they haven't announced EKS support yet. I think that's the last thing they're waiting for, right? Yeah, these Private Links were so great when we had to run our own NAT instances because. That's always the thing that went down that would take down all the public services for, for stuff in private subnets. All these uh, announcements make total sense, but are so much less interesting now that NAT gateways exist and they're pretty reliable. And Azure cost management, now GA for enterprise agreements and more. And more. <laughs> I don't understand why startups don't care about cost management. I think they would care more than enterprises. Why Why is this only for them? No good reason. No good reason. All right. So that wraps up our lightning round. Uh, boy, we had, a, uh, we had a stellar performance. Five for five, two home runs, two doubles. Justin wins today. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it puts me back in tide with, uh, with Jonathan. Yep, that's two, two to two to one to one. Well, there's always next week. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Audible.com. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod. <laughs> <laughs>